0: Hey, this is Dave DeCamp from antiwar.com. This is anti war news for Thursday, November 9th, 2023. Alright, right, so the first story at the top of Antiwar.com today, the U.S. launches airstrikes in eastern Syria. So the Pentagon said on Wednesday night that the U.S. launched more airstrikes in eastern Syria that targeted a facility used by Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps and affiliated groups. So Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin said in a statement, quote, the strike was conducted by two US F 15s against a weapons storage facility, end quote. He said the strike was a quote response to a series of attacks against US personnel in Iraq and Syria by IRGC affiliates, end quote. So when he says IRGC affiliates, he is referring to the Shia militias that operate in Iraq and Syria. So the U.S. launched a similar airstrike recently on October 27th, and they said the purpose of that was to deter further attacks on U.S. troops, but it's very clear that did not work. There's still been lots of, there was more attacks on U.S. bases reported on Wednesday. The count now is that since October 17th, there's been 41 attacks on U.S. troops based in Iraq and Syria, and at least 45 troops have been injured. So, an umbrella group of Shia militias that calls itself the Islamic Resistance of Iraq has taken credit for many of the attacks on U.S. bases. The militias receive support from Iran, but it is unclear if Iran is directing these attacks or if they are involved. The Pentagon has previously acknowledged that it has no evidence of direct Iranian involvement. And for their part, Iran is strongly denying that they have any role in these attacks on U.S. troops. Responding to the U.S. allegations, Iran's representative to the U.N. said on Tuesday that they, quote, have never been involved in any actions or attacks directed at the United States military forces in Syria and Iraq, end quote. Um, So something to keep in mind that Iran is strongly denying they're involved here. Another thing to keep in mind is that uh, you know we don't we can't really take the Pentagon at face value for what they say they bombed in eastern Syria. You know, there's many examples of of them either lying about what they hit or um, being wrong because they had bad intelligence. So uh, it might become clear in the next couple of days. You know, if if there's casualties, we haven't seen any reports of casualties yet. And one thing to that we should worry about here is that they say they're targeting an Iranian military site used by the IRGC. If any IRGC personnel are killed or wounded in this attack, then that risks a huge escalation with Iran. And, you know, Austin in his, in his uh, press statement about these airstrikes said that the U.S. urges against escalation, but it's clear to me that these Shia militias are not going to back down they didn't back down the last time. Why would they back down now? They they only ramped up attacks against U.S. forces. So things are just going to escalate here. I I assume, and um, as long as the U.S. is backing Israel's you know brutal assault on on Gaza, um, you know I just don't see them this de-escalating. You know the the responsible thing for the U.S. to do would be to leave Iraq and Syria, but realistically we know that's not going to happen. Unfortunately, um. So also on Wednesday, separately in Syria, Israel launched airstrikes in southern Syria. You know, I was keeping a tally of all the Israeli airstrikes on Syria throughout the year because Israel frequently bombed Syria before the October 7th uh, escalation in the region. Uh, But they've really stepped up the strike since then, and I think I've missed a few. My last count was about 32 Israeli airstrikes in Syria in 2023, but now there seems to be uh, a lot more happening. So you had Israel also bombed Syria on Wednesday, and there were reports of a big ISIS attack on Syrian troops and a pro-government Syrian militia that killed at least 30 people. Um, And, you know, the U.S. is nominally in Syria to fight ISIS, but the reality is the U.S. being there is a benefit to ISIS because then you have... The U.S. and these Shia militias fighting each other, you know, it just gives ISIS the opportunity to do things like this and regroup when you have all these other parties focused on each other, when if the U.S. just pulled out, you know, Syria and its allies could deal with the remnants of ISIS. They don't control any significant territory, but they're able to survive as the country is still pretty destabilized. And a big part of the reason why it's destabilized is because the U.S. is still there, um, All right, so the next one here, another potential escalation, the Houthis down a U.S. MQ-9 Reaper drone off Yemen. So Yemen's Houthis said on Wednesday that their military successfully downed a U.S. MQ-9 Reaper drone that was flying off the coast of Yemen. A U.S. official later confirmed that the Houthis downed an American drone and said the U.S. was analyzing the incident. So the Houthis, uh, they're formerly known as Ansar Allah, They have been firing missiles and drones toward Israel and say the attacks will keep up until the Israeli onslaught of Gaza comes to an end. In a statement, the Houthis said the U.S. drone that was downed was deployed to back Israel. So they're saying the MQ-9 Reaper drone that they shot down was deployed as part of the U.S. effort to protect Israel. And uh, an MQ-9 Reaper drone can be used for surveillance, but they are also used for drone strikes. They can carry very powerful missiles. The U.S. uses them quite a bit uh, in their drone strikes. So the Houthi statement said, quote, "...our air defenses were able to down an American MQ-9 while it was carrying out hostile surveillance and espionage activities in Yemeni territorial waters." As part of American military support for Israel, end quote. So the downing of this drone, of course, raises questions about a potential American response. In October, the Pentagon said that that a US warship in the Red Sea had intercepted drones and missiles that the Houthis fired toward Israel. And we know there's a lot of American firepower in the region now, even more so than usual. Uh, The Houthis have downed American drones before, uh, I believe in 2019. I know that same year, Iran downed a drone. And um, so we'll see. And we always have to keep in mind that the U.S. has basically been at war with the Houthis for many years now. The U.S. has backed the Saudi-led coalition against them since 2015. Thankfully, there's been a ceasefire since April 2022 that's held pretty well. Uh, but the war's not over. They haven't signed a peace deal uh, or anything. Um, and the U.S. also has a military presence in Yemen. There's U.S. troops in Yemen. We don't know how many, but they're, they are there. Biden confirmed that to Congress not too long ago. And they're in Yemen uh, on the ground to fight al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, AQAP. That's at least on paper what the U.S. troops are in Yemen for And something always worth pointing out is that the Houthis were actually briefly an American partner in the fight against AQAP. The U.S. was sharing intelligence with them uh, in 2015, right before backing the Saudi-led coalition against them. And then that coalition, the Saudi-UAE coalition, uh, was basically, you know, on al-Qaeda's side against the Houthis, and they actually recruited al-Qaeda fighters to fight on the ground for them. And U.S. weapons sold to the Saudis and the UAE ended up in al-Qaeda's hands in Yemen. Um, so it's just a mess, uh, you know, similar to Syria, just how much of a mess these U.S. interventions uh, become. But here, another area we got to keep an eye on is Yemen here. Um All right, so the next one here, the U.S. says that Israel will have initial security responsibility in Gaza. So the White House on Wednesday said that the Israeli military would likely have to be responsible for security in Gaza initially after the war if Israel is successful in rooting out Hamas. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby said, quote, I think all of us can foresee a period of time after the conflict is over, where Israeli forces will likely still be in Gaza and will have some initial security responsibilities end quote so these comments are pretty similar to what Netanyahu said the other day, except he said Israel will take over security responsibility for Gaza for an indefinite period, so he left it much more open ended um signaling uh you know long term military occupation. So Kirby also warned Israel against reoccupying Gaza. That's a line that we're seeing from Biden administration officials not to reoccupy Gaza, um, which is kind of a misleading term. Uh, Israel did, you know, it occupied Gaza for decades, you know, after the 1967 war. And they pulled their troops out in 2005. But then in 2007, they put a blockade on Gaza after Hamas took power and it's been under military blockade ever since then. So technically, that is con- that is still c- because they control Gaza's, um, you know, waters, it's, its airspace. They control pretty much everything except for the one border crossing with Egypt. That's technically still a military occupation. Um, so anyway, uh, Blinken on Wednesday also warned Israel against occupying Gaza while acknowledging that there will be a transition period after the war. So basically, you know, you have Blinken and, and Biden has said this, that, oh, Israel can't occupy Gaza when this is over. We need a two-state solution. But realistically, it doesn't matter what they're saying because they're giving Israel their full-throated support with no conditions. And it's very clear that Netanyahu is not going to want to, you know, do anything like that. And they are talking about a two-state solution, but look over at the West Bank. What's happening there is that uh, this Netanyahu government that came to power at the end of December 2022. They said they were going to prioritize expanding settlements. They ultimately want to annex the West Bank. So there's no chance of a two-state solution you know, style resolution if that's what they're trying to do. Um, so it's just not realistic the things that the Biden administration is saying here. Um, We know what Netanyahu wants to do. There was that leaked intelligence ministry report about a plan to push the Palestinians into Egypt, all 2.3 million of them. Uh, The problem is that Egypt is not going to go for that, and neither is, uh, you know, a lot of countries in the region. Um, So, you know, it's really up in the air what will happen after all this or how this is going to go. Who knows how long this war is going to last? It could last a really long time. Um, all right, so the next one here, the Pentagon lays out four military objectives for the Middle East. So this article is by uh, Kyle Anzelone at the Libertarian Institute, and it says that a Department of Defense spokesman explained to Washington's current goals in the Middle East, what they're trying to accomplish amid this war in Gaza. So according to the press release outlining General Pat Ryder's statement, who's the Pentagon spokesman, the Pentagon's four main priorities are protection of U.S. forces. That's one. Two, flow of critical security assistance to Israel as it defends against further Hamas attacks. Number three, coordination with the Israelis to help secure the release of hostages held by Hamas. Number four, strengthening of force posture across the region to deter any state or non-state actors from escalating the crisis beyond Gaza. So that's their goals here, but it does look like things are escalating and could really get out of control. All right, so the next one here: Israel says it's fighting in the heart of Gaza City. So the uh, Israel's Defense Minister Yoav Gallant he said late Tuesday that Israeli forces were fighting in the heart of Gaza City, as Hamas is claiming its fighters are inflicting heavy losses on the Israeli defense forces. So Galan said, quote, IDF forces are in the heart of Gaza City. They came from the north and the south. They stormed it in full coordination between land, air, and sea forces, end quote. So according to the cradle, Hamas's Al Qasim's brigades said in a statement on Wednesday that since early that morning, its fighters destroyed 15 enemy vehicles in several areas in Gaza. The Quds Brigade, which is the armed faction of Palestinian Islamic Jihad, they also said that they're targeting Israeli armored vehicles, and the IDF said that two of its soldiers were killed on Wednesday, bringing the Israeli death toll since the ground invasion began on October 27th to 33, so 33 Israeli troops killed so far in this ground incursion. I know Hamas is saying that they're killing more than Israel is is letting on, uh, but we don't know. Um you know, there's no way to confirm that. And it's not clear how many Israeli troops are actually there because they, uh, Israel hasn't said, they haven't put out many details about the force that they have on the ground. Um, so, I have this map up from south front here. You see Israel's trying to sever this area of northern Gaza from the rest of the strip and focus on conquering this city um, before looking south, it seems to be the plan. So according to AP, clashes took place only 0.6 miles from the Al Shifa hospital. So this is Gaza's largest hospital, and there's thousands of patients there, thousands of people just seeking refuge from the airstrikes. And this was the hospital that a few days ago, Israel bombed an ambulance outside when it was loading people up. And Israel's claiming that Hamas has headquarters under the hospital, which the hospital staff is denying, so kind of implying that they might bomb, blow up the hospital, and with all these people inside. So things are very tense for everybody there, I'm sure, I cannot even imagine um, any situation like that. And so far, the, oh, also the fighting in the north has caused a few thousand more Palestinians in North Gaza to flee to the south on foot. They're just, you know, going for it, trying to get out of there. Um, So the latest death toll put out by Gaza's health ministry is 10,569 Palestinians killed since October 7th, including 4,324 children. Um, All right. So the next one here, 1,000 USAID employees signed letter backing Gaza ceasefire. So this article is from Al Jazeera. And it's interesting, it says that hundreds of staffers at the United States Agency for International Development, USAID, have signed a letter calling for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza as a growing number of government employees voiced dissent against U.S. support for Israel's military offensive. So this letter started circulating last week. It reached 1,000 signatures on Wednesday representing officials from across the agency's department, and overseas missions. So the letter says, quote, While we appreciate and acknowledge efforts by USAID to call for an, an urgent humanitarian response in Gaza and understand that the agency is working tirelessly to make this happen, we must remember that humanitarian assistance efforts and life-saving aid are largely rendered moot in a, in situations of escalating and indiscriminate bombing and violence," end quote. So they're basically saying this: these aid efforts are pointless as long as the bombing campaign is continuing. You know, in a place like Gaza, that's so densely populated and everything. Um, so this is uh, interesting to see more dissent from within the U.S. government over this policy of the full-throated support for Israel's assault. Uh, The next one here, I just put in the live updates um, from Al Jazeera about the situation in Gaza and uh, more airstrikes uh, reported in the vicinity of two Gaza hospitals. Um, The USAID letter, emergency workers search for survivors of the latest Israeli strike on Jabalia, the refugee camp that they have been targeting quite a bit. Um. So still just a lot of airstrikes and stuff going on there. Uh, All right, the next one here, Ukraine takes credit for car bombing in Luhansk. So this story is really, uh, it's really something. Ukraine's CIA-backed military intelligence has taken credit for a car bombing that killed a politician in Russian-controlled Eastern Ukraine on Wednesday. So this guy's name is Mikhail Philip. Filiponenko, probably pronouncing that wrong, and he is a member of the local Russian-backed legislature in Luhansk, and he's a former police chief. He was killed in his car outside of his house. He was born in Luhansk. He was Ukrainian-born, and he joined the separatists who declared the creation of the Luhansk People's Republic in 2014 following the coup that ousted former President Viktor Yanukovych in Kiev. Um, So according to AP, he had actually survived a previous car bombing on February 21st, 2022. So they've been after this guy for a while. And that was three days before Russia actually invaded Ukraine. Um, It's an example of how there was a war going on in eastern Ukraine before the Russian invasion. Ukraine's military intelligence directorate, known as the GUR, claimed that Filiponenko was involved in torture camps in Luhansk, so that's their justification. And a representative for the GUR told Politico that the Wednesday killing of Filiponenko was our operation. The GUR said in a statement that it had the addresses of all the traitors living In Russian-controlled Ukraine, and warned, quote, all war criminals and collaborators will receive a fair retribution. The hunt continues, end quote. So, you know, it seems like they're just, they they didn't used to do this, as far as I know, just take credit for these assassinations right away, uh, like this. Um, I mean, it is, goes to show how, you know, brazen they are, and You know, this is what the U.S. is supporting, car bombings, that, you know, whatever this guy did, he was a local politician in this Russian-controlled area of Ukraine that was independent of Kiev for a long time. And this came after that report from the Washington Post that detailed how the CIA helped build up the GUR and the security service of Ukraine, that's the SBU, and that included tens of millions of dollars in funding since 2015. And a former, there's a quote in this report from a former U.S. intelligence official who described the GUR, the people that carried out this car bombing, as our little baby. And they said that the U.S. provided all new equipment and training for this military intelligence unit. And, you know, it basically credited the CIA support with how they have the ability to carry out these assassinations and stuff. And these started in the Donbass, you know, before, long before the Russian invasion. These types of assassinations were going on for a long time. Um, All right, so the next one here. State Department officials make the case to keep funding Ukraine. So this is another article from Kyle at the Libertarian Institute. Officials from the State Department and USAID pressed Congress to pass a $105 billion spending package that will provide weapons to Ukraine and Israel. One Biden administration official said it was crucial to provide aid to Kiev because, quote, the besieged people of Ukraine are fighting for basic needs such as food, water, medicine, and electricity, end quote. So Aaron McKee, the assistant administrator for Europe and Eurasia at USAID, said, quote, the besieged people are fighting for their country's survival as a democratic state, end quote. So, you know kind of making this big plea to keep this uh proxy war going here and still so far congress has not authorized uh any of this funding that biden is looking for whether for ukraine is even the israel funding you know the house passed the one republican version of the bill that the senate said it would not even take up so there's all these delays but it doesn't matter i mean the u.s is just shipping weapons to israel every day anyway you know, so they'll, they'll be able to make the funds available, I guess, anyway, but not so much when it comes to Ukraine. The, they're saying that pretty much all of the aid is dried up except for the presidential drawdown authority. There's still about 5 billion of that left, and that's what lets the U.S. ship weapons directly to Ukraine. I wonder if they're dipping into that for Israel, if that's something they can do, uh, you know, uh, I'm not sure. Alright, so the last story here. The Philippines and Japan are working on a new military pact. So the Philippine government has said that it's working on a pact to strengthen military ties with Japan amid rising tensions in the region. So this proposed deal, known as a Reciprocal Access Agreement, would allow the two nations to deploy troops on each other's territory. So for Japan, this is kind of a big deal. Japan recently finalized a similar agreement with Israel. Sorry, not with Israel, with Australia. Just have Israel on the mind. Uh, but this deal between Japan and Australia allowed them to deploy troops to each other's territory. And this was the first deal of its kind that Japan signed with a country, uh since World War II, that wasn't the U.S. Up until this point, the U.S. was the only country allowed to deploy its troops on Japanese territory, and there's tens of thousands of U.S. troops in Japan. Um, So Japan and the Philippines are both treaty allies of the U.S., and both nations have maritime disputes with China over small, uninhabited islands that the U.S. has said they would defend. For Japan, it's the Senkaku Islands in the East China Sea, they're a major source of tensions with China. Ch- China and Japan both claim them. Japan controls them. Chinese Coast Guard vessels go around there sometimes, and they have these standoffs. And then over in the South China Sea, you have the Philippines and China have overlapping claims to quite a few of these rocks and reefs, and there's a lot of tensions there. Um, so these are the things that the U.S. has pledged to defend. Um And this is part of the U.S. strategy. It's not just the U.S. expanding its military presence. It's also this getting its allies to increase cooperation. They're trying to form this trilateral alliance between the U.S., Japan, South Korea. Um, Japan's a big one. They really want Japan to increase its military. They're building up their military at an unprecedented level, uh, again, in the post-World War II era. And they want Japan to... Really become a major regional force, and this is part of it. They want joint military exercises in the South China Sea. Um, the U.S. just had two aircraft carrier strike groups in the Philippine Sea to conduct. They were doing drills with the Japanese destroyer. So, two aircraft carriers. You know, that's a pretty significant show of force. Uh, you know, it's the aircraft carrier and then several destroyers and other types of navy ships. Um, you know, and and they have a pretty regular presence now in this part of the world. Uh, you know, an aircraft carrier—it's not uncommon for two U.S. aircraft carriers to be sailing around Southeast Asia now. Uh, it used to be a lot more rare. Um, all right, that's it for the news for today. Please go check out our viewpoints. We have one from Jim Fitzgerald, Israel Palestine. If the shoe were on the other foot, one from Ron Fourth Four. More violence leads to even more violence. One from Branko, March Teach. A ceasefire in Gaza can end the war on civilians. A humanitarian pause will not. One from Ted Snyder. Israel alone is supporting the U.S. embargo of Cuba. One from David C. Hendrickson. Why do we let Israel and Ukraine wag the U.S. dog? Uh, That is everything for me. You could always help the show out just by sharing and telling your friends about Antiwar.com, like and subscribe, and all that good stuff. Follow me on Twitter, at TheCampDave, follow Antiwar.com on Twitter. Uh, That's everything for me for today. I'll be back tomorrow with some more news for you. Thanks for listening.